Hi, folks. I'm Layman Pascal, and this is Love the System, the integral stage discussion series devoted to the so-called lower right quadrant. Systems, protocols, algorithms, economies, societies, collective intelligence, and interbehavioral dynamics. Today, we're sitting down with John Bunzel, founder of the Simpole Movement. I know a lot of folks in the integral metamodern game B, intellectual deep web, rebel wisdom, neo-bildung, and adjacent communities are sensing that Simpole holds an important piece of the civilization upgrade project. There is clearly a gap between the planetary scale at which capital flows and creates incentives and the scale of thinking and feeling that informs the instincts of individuals and national governments. So hopefully we'll close that gap a little bit today. Hi, John. Hi there, Layman. Thanks very much for the invitation. Great to be here. One of the main ideas that comes up in theories of cognitive development is that we have to turn the things that embed our identity into objects that we can inspect and respond to. So how important, how psychoactive is it to clearly name and identify destructive global competition? Uh, it's, it's critical. Um, I, I mean, for me personally, it, it's almost like the lens through which I feel I can see the world in a truly world-centric way. Uh, because I think, you know, most of us in the Western world, at least, <clears throat> are identified. We, well, we don't even realize how identified we are with the national level. So, so for example, if, if uh, you hear a politician saying to you, well, this will keep the US or Canada more competitive, your, your immediate instinct to think is, oh, well, that must be a good thing, right? But when you're looking at that from a world-centric perspective, where you, you realize that all nations are competing destructively for, for capital, you know, inward investment capital, multinational corporations, jobs and investment, you start to see, well, hang on a minute, uh, what, what, what at the nation-centric level I saw as, as, as beneficial, now I can start to see that as actually potentially destructive. And it, but so if you don't have that world-centric perspective, frankly, you're lost. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very powerful clarifying concept because once you get your head around it, you start to see that like 90% of the news stories you see are sort of embedded in this concept and people are trying to address it in a much smaller context than it's actually operating. That's right and I and I and I think we don't we don't even realize you know how how embedded in the nation centric level we are. Because after all, it's been with us since 1648. And for the last, you know, for the, for ever since then, it has been the, you know, the glasses through which we, through which we perceive the world, almost without realizing it. I was trying to think yesterday about when the discussion about competitiveness was introduced as a main political conversation topic. Do you have any sense of that? And like when, like when the, current phase of destructive global competition really started to emerge and get out of hand? Yeah, I think it was really, you know, the, the kickoff point was the Reagan-Thatcher um, deregulation of, of financial markets, because that just, that just let capital go global, basically. And once, once you've done that, the genie is out of the bottle. Because as soon as capital is, is roaming freely and globally to wherever it can make the highest return, it's sort of, it's not, it's not you know, it, it's not difficult to see 
how that would bring nations into into destructive competition with each other, or, you know, almost automatically, it, it's it's, it's going to happen. And that's when you see this rhetoric about international competitiveness becoming so prevalent. <clears throat> and um, you know, so in the in the eighties and nineties, you know, that was the age when when left of center parties like you know Clinton and Blair. And, and Gerhard Schroeder in Germany, to some degree, you know, it, it, it embraced this uh, this idea under under the cover of third way rhetoric or, or some other sort of uh, you know euphemism for for a left wing version of neoliberalism, you know, and 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 that's where they, you know, that, that that's that the left sort of got sucked into that. If you, I think, Blair and Clinton. In those days, when when globalization was still relatively new, left wing parties that that embraced it uh, actually kind of could you know square the circle for a while because they were on the leading edge of the advantage. But then when you get someone like Macron who comes along much later and tries to do the same thing, you know the boat's gone already. You know he, he he's missed the boat and and now. You're, we're in a situation. I mean, he's not on the left, of course, but but generally speaking, I think this is why you see left-wing parties or your centre-left parties, uh, you know, the Democrats in the case of the U.S. Uh, you see them really becoming almost impotent and losing, you know, because they can't they can't support the working classes, you know, their traditional supporter base, because higher taxes on the rich and the corporations would send them elsewhere, would make the country uncompetitive. And so what, what have they got left? You know, and I think that's part of the reason that the left is, has sort of accepted the booby prize of, of identity politics. Because if you can't really implement what you're supposed to be there for, that's what these parties, the Labour Party, it was called the Labour Party, you know, if, you, if it can't speak to its core support, what else can it do but play identity politics? Yeah. So there's, I think there's, it's a disaster for the land. It really goes uh, uninspected the degree to which the um, exaggerated modern global economy is incentivizes the cultural arguments. Right. It's very easy to lay that at the foot of traditionalists versus postmodernists. Mm. Uh, but there's a strong incentive for the modernist system to make that be the comp conversation. Yes, yes. I mean, it's, you know, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And, and really, the, the traditionalists, you know, the, 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 the traditionalists and the postmodernists, if they could understand destructive global competition, they would more easily realize that they would be on the same team. Because if you, um, you know, it is, it is the unregulated nature of the global market and, and the free movement of capital that is, you know, creating this very unbalanced win-lose economy. And that is what is pumping people from the developing world up into the rich Western world, you know. So, so uh, uh, the solution for what the left wants, which is greater wealth, in, uh, wealth equality 
and, and, and solving climate change would also actually be the same tool that would solve the mass migration problem. Because if you could, if you could tax these, you know, the Googles and the Amazons and the Facebooks properly, and you could redistribute those funds more to developing countries so that people in those countries can make a decent living at home, which is after all what most people want to do, um, you wouldn't need to build walls. You wouldn't even need to have the discussion about should we keep them out or should we open the borders because nobody would want to be crossing them particularly except for a holiday, you know. So, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, Leighton, obviously, and I'm, 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 I'm aware that I'm, uh, you know, it's, it's easier said than done. But, but ultimately, we've got to go in that direction. And, and so that, you're quite right that, that there's this, without seeing the world-centric destructive global competition context, you know, at, at, the, at the national level, you're going to get the conflict between left and right, between globalists and nationalists, between, you know, it's, it's the mess we see right now. Um, and, and, the, and, and the left and the right are just as crazy as each other, basically, you know, the extremes anyway. A lot of people who take it simple are a bit frustrated that it doesn't include a set of policy prescriptions. And, you know, I'm, I'd be curious to hear your impressions and insights about potential policy changes. But one of the things that makes it a very powerful uh, lens for viewing the situation is that it's not concerned with policy content. It's charting out a set of dynamics and incentives that would allow policy to be implemented at a planetary scale. Yes, yes. I mean, it's not concerned with specific policies at this stage, but it will be hopefully at a later stage. Well, why don't you, um, could you walk us through how you envision those stages playing out a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So the first stage that we're at right now is, is simply a, uh, the stage of, of, of getting politicians and citizens signed up to this idea in principle. So we're inviting <clears throat> citizens to sign up and we're inviting politicians to sign the so-called pledge uh, to implement the simultaneous policy if and when sufficient other governments are on board. But the, there is actually no policy content yet, as you, as you quite rightly say, Lem, and that's deliberate for two reasons. One is it would be completely undemocratic if, if we, you know, me, if I decided what the policy should be, or if, you know, the small people, the number of people who are involved in Simpol were to try and sort of say, well, this is our policy, that wouldn't be democratic. And also it's completely impractical because you need to see Simpol's evolution in, in this sort of a more extended time, in a, in a more extended time frame. And, and by, by the time Simpol might get implemented, global circumstances could be quite different to what they are today. And therefore to try and set policies now would, would, would be madness. So we, we deliberate, it's deliberately left open. And, and I mean, in sometimes I, I describe it as a horse and cart. You know, the cart is, is, is what policies do we need? And the horse is how do we get them delivered? And simple is like the horse but the cart is at the moment empty so that people to invite people precisely to come into that space and say, well, okay, now we, we know that we can get these policies delivered. What, what do those, what could those policies actually be? 
And the, <clears throat> the process we envisage is a two-stage process. So the first stage is getting people on board, as I've discussed, and we're already doing that now. But the when we've got enough in-principle buy-in from uh, citizens and democratic countries, and maybe even some non-democratic countries, at that point, we would start a two-stage policy development process. So the first stage <clears throat> would be a national stage, where each independent nation or you know, in democratic countries, that would mean simple supporting citizens. In non-democratic nations, it would just mean the government. They would independently work out, well, what are the 10 most pressing global issues from our national perspective? And what are the 10 policies that we think would be the best to solve them? Okay. <clears throat> and of course, it's important that you have that national stage because there are different perspectives, you know, different, different priorities in different countries. So it's important that those are identified by each country. And then the second stage would be when you bring them all together for, a, for an international negotiation, at which point you, you start to sort out um, what we call policy packages. So under SIMPOL, we, we would envisage the implementation not of a single issue package, you know, like, uh, like the United Nations is trying to do now with climate change, we, we would envisage multi-issue packages. The reason for that is that what a nation might lose on one issue, it can gain on the other. And, and it's the lack of that multi-issue approach, which I think is one important reason why the UN process is failing. Because if you just take one issue, there's always gonna be some nations that win, others that lose, and because there's only one issue, there's no opportunity for trade-offs. And so, of course, the losers don't cooperate. And so it all falls apart. You know? So under Simpol, we're looking at a series of multi-issue packages implemented, you know, maybe package, the first package on year one, the second in year two, uh, year three, the third in year five, and so forth. And then there would be opportunities to modify previous packages as, as we go along. And so it would be in that second international negotiation where hopefully the, the, these policy packages could be worked out and the precise uh, policy details agreed. Now, the other thing I should say, Lehman, is, is especially for, for, for viewers in the, in the US and Canada, we are not talking about a one-size-fits-all policy. Okay, we're not saying that all nations would do all exactly the same thing. No, what we're saying is, is that each nation would know what every other nation is going to do so that there is transparency and so that every nation knows what the impact on its economic competitiveness is going to be, right? And, and this, is, this is the problem now with, with the UN process. It's usually, you know, with, with the COP process on climate change, it's all about targets. But no, you know, so they, they agree a target of cutting emissions by X percent or whatever, right? But the problem is, is that no nation knows what each other, what every other nation is going to actually do to achieve those targets. And so they all remain suspicious of each other. They don't know what every, every, everyone else is going to do, what every other nation is going to do. They don't know how it's going to impact on their competitiveness. And so they do nothing. Right. Or do very little. So that kind of transparency, 
Uh, like obviously it has a role in making nations and markets feel stable, like they know what's going to happen. But it seems like it also has a big role to play in developing international trust because all of this depends on increasing international trust. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, the, the first stage of actually getting politicians and citizens signed up is, is the first part of that trust. So, so for example, in, in the UK, we have just over 100 members of parliament from right across the party spectrum who've signed up to this. And I'm very proud of that, I think, because it shows that, you know, Simpol really can and does transcend and include, you know, and, and that is part of that trust process, that we are all in this together. You know, so we're, we're, we're getting away from the, 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 the postmodern green level blaming and shaming kind of way of thinking to, to one where we recognize that we're all caught in, in, in destructive global competition at, at, one, in, at one level or another. And we all need to, you know, we all need to stop blaming each other and, and start working together. I like that it tries to um, exploit the existing structures of the world, right? Like there are some good arguments to be made for getting rid of first past the post voting as, a, as, a, as an insufficient way of integrating the collective intelligence of a body of people. But a lot of places have that. So how can we take advantage of it, right? We can't require China to cease being China before we make any progress. We've got to take the systems as they're given and figure out how to turn them toward benevolence at this higher scale. Absolutely. I'm, I'm so glad you, you, you see that. And that, that's precisely what we, what we are trying to, to do. And you know, the way in which Simple invites citizens to use their vote uh, um, in their national elections um, provides exactly that opportunity. Because I think one of the, one of the problems with, with game A, game B kind of thinking is that if you create a game B, you immediately make it's in opposition to game A. What you've got to do is to transform game A and turn it into game B, right? And, and, and you can only do that politically if you can work through the existing national electoral systems without being a political party. In other words, without actually becoming identified with those systems. And Simpol doesn't do that. Simpol is is above, in fact, it brings the existing political parties and, and members of parliament into competition with each other. So it kind of turbocharges party political competition to produce global cooperation, if that makes sense. Absolutely. <laughs> There's um, the role of the so-called lower right quadrant in integral thinking is sort of debated because it's easy to look at world systems and say we've been dominated by systems approaches and we've left out spirituality, we've left out mutuality. Um, but at the higher levels that we're trying to help emerge, we haven't really paid much attention to systemic dynamics. Well, so I think there's a, you know, coming out of green or pluralistic kind of ecologically aware thinking a lot of people take the responsibility on themselves 
And that's sort of encouraged by the system. Like I recently watched a Netflix documentary about international fisheries. I grew up in a fishing village, so I knew some of it and knew some of the players. But the, uh, the degree to which the international fisheries are playing a role in the potential rapid destabilization of the entire ecosystem is enormous. But the punchline of the film was individual consumers should stop eating fish. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah, so far away from the scale of the problem that it's almost laughable. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, this is it. I think because, because and, and this is another example, I think, of nation-centric versus world-centric thinking. If you, if you don't see destructive competition and you don't see the world-centric, you don't see simple, what have you got left? You, you know, you're, you're sort of left with incompetent governments that can't act. Even You might not understand why, but they, just, they can't do it. And then, you know, well, we, can tr we can try to get the corporations to act properly, but, you know, but, but oh, well, at least we can, we can change our buying habits. So it reduces the, the lower quadrants to the upper quadrants, in a sense, and, and portrays, like exactly as you said, it portrays it as an individual responsibility issue when actually individual action on, on, on a systemic problem like this is just a distraction, frankly. And, you know, I'm not saying that individual action is, you know, that one should ignore it. it it's important, but it's, it's really, it's almost beside the point, you know. Uh, the, 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 and, you know, the, 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 the collective action piece, that's exactly the piece that Simpol provides. You know, it's exactly that missing piece and, and ideally, we should do both. You know, you should support simple and stop eating the worst kind of fish. You know, so it's not a, it's not an either or. It's a it's a both and. Uh, there's some interesting general themes and principles that I see running through all of this. Obviously, one of them is simultaneity, which has a role to play in higher cognition as well as higher political and economic changes. Another one is reversal of competition dynamics like it seems to me we're describing a situation in which instead of the market being a place where corporations compete to provide well-being and innovation nations are competing to service corporations so there's an inversion of competition there but there's also this sense of instead of of, of say getting politicians to have to compete for the simple vote so there's a number of areas in which the vision you're putting forward involves a space of alternative competitive reversals. And I'm wondering it's how paradoxical. you think that is to um, higher consciousness. And also when, when did you start to detect patterns? When did you start to see into a space like that? To your first question, yes, it's full of paradox. And, and I, I actually, a, a great Canadian guy I think his what was his name Barrett somebody Barrett wrote a book called the paradox process and in which he he recognized that that the, the most some of the most genius ideas were highly par paradoxical and, and just as you're describing uh layman yeah there, there are so many so so you've got you've got the paradox that <clears throat> the governmental dog should be wagging the corporate tail that's actually been turned on its head by destructive global competition such that now you, it's the other way around you know the the the, the, <laughs> the corporate tail is wagging the government dog and um 
uh, yeah, so, so I think often it's, it's that process, coming back to the consciousness thing you were talking about earlier, it's that process of disidentifying. When you disidentify from that previous level and you see its contradictions, you, your first reaction is to feel powerless and, and to feel, oh my God, I, I, you know, I'm falling. I can't do anything about this. And then you can actually say, but then you, you get to a new level. We say, well, actually, you know what? Now that I've become a bit powerless here, I can actually have a bit of fun with this and turn, up, turn the tables on it altogether, you know. And, and that's exactly what, what Simpol um, supporters are doing. You know, so, so just to give you one example, uh, Lehman, in, there's, there's one particular parliamentary, well, there's a number actually, but there's, 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 uh, there's a parliamentary constituency area in the west of England, which is highly marginal. So it's been won and lost <coughs> on about 100, 150 votes, quite typically. And, uh, and at one of the elections, I can't remember the ones we fought, um, whether it was the last one or the one before, but um, you know, it was about two weeks before the election, and we got the—I think we got the Green Party candidate to sign up. And then it was great because the, the one of our supporters down there—he rang me up and he said, "John, this is great because now we've got them all by the balls." And sure enough, you know, once one signs up, because the margins are so tight in that constituency, and we never tell. The candidates how many supporters we have in the area you know we keep them guessing and so the green party signed up then the liberal democrat then the labor and then the conservative and so they all signed up so two weeks before the election was due we knew we'd won that seat anyhow in the sense that we knew that whoever won would be a, a pledged simple member of parliament so you know we can actually turn the tables very very effectively and, and I think um, in, in systems theory or in chaos theory, I think Erwin Laszlo talks about a critical system is often very, very finely matched, like in the US election in 2000, or even you know, uh, the last election between Trump and uh, Clinton, you know, the, the, the more critical the system becomes, the more evenly matched both main factions are. And that means that something like Simpol can tip the balance very easily or relatively easily. And so that's the, that's the exciting potential, I think, that Simpol has. But we need citizens to get with it, you know, um, to realize that they have this power um, to, to influence the, the situation very powerfully. And that's quite a big task, I think. Sorry, there was a, I didn't answer the other part of your question, Leonard. I've completely forgotten now. Sorry. <laughs> um, you know, do you feel like you're seeing into a space where these structures are contained? These kinds of paradoxical oh, yeah. shapes, yeah. and like, when did you? When do you feel like you started to really pay attention to patterns of this kind? Well, it was. It was. It was actually. I mean, I didn't realize it at the time. It was actually uh, back in. 2098 and um, it was it was basically an altered state experience as you know from what I can understand now um, I you know I was having lunch with my my family and my kids and my kids were talking about climate change because they were covering it at school and um, 
you know, at the end of the meal, my mum sort of turned around and said, well, John, what would you do about climate change? And, you know, in that moment, I, I was sort of aware of, of somehow going, going inside myself in a very almost ruthless way. And, and, and then into that emptiness pop this enormously powerful realization that the, the and it was on my list it would have to happen simultaneously but 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 it, it was wasn't the words it was the whole feeling behind it Lem. and at the time i couldn't even put it into words because it was it was like a unity consciousness experience and and the idea that it wasn't just about nations acting simultaneously so that nobody would lose out. It was also the whole idea that, 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 that when you're stuck in a vicious circle, the, the, the articulation of, a, of, a, of, of us simultaneously implementing something together kind of opens up a new context, which wasn't there before. And, and that actually we could simultaneously carry on competing in this context, as we kind of must, while still talking about developing, building and negotiating what we are going to do together in the new context to take us to that new level, to take us to the new world that we, we need to, uh, we, we all need to reach. So... Yeah, it, so it was a very, very, so it was right back in that moment, it was a split second moment. And ever since then, I, I've, I've sort of been, you know, my brain has been rewiring itself to, 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 to actually <clears throat> see what it really meant. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, and, and, but so it really all happened in a split second moment. It was all there, but I, it took me sort of many, many years to sort of really make sense of it and to, to read around the topic of, because you know, I, I'm, I'm basically, I'm just a paper salesman. I'm not a politician or, a, or anything like that. So you know, to read around, I didn't have any particular interest in, in global affairs. So I, I had to do a lot of reading to sort of see, well, does this idea really make any sense? And, and I thought, well, if it's that good of an idea, probably someone else has already thought of it already anyhow. Um, but the more I read, the more I realized that it was relevant and that nobody had thought uh, and we've gone from gone on from there, building slowly, slowly, slowly. But it is a slow process because consciousness is slow. And and um, you know many of the the kind of organisations I thought would be very supportive of this, I discovered are don't really get it. <laughs> so that's you know that's your that's the sort of I think that's the challenge we have in trying to help the green level come come up basically so some of that challenge is but some of it's emotional and there's a there's a great deal in the simple book about um the stages of loss and sort of grieving the death of over identification with nation states do you feel like you've gone through a process like that yourself yes yeah yes Lehman. yeah i mean i think it's more a it's more an identification, not so much with nation states. It's more, well, it sort of is. You know, it's more, it's more I think, for, for the postmodern level as expressed through 
politics and activism. It's more about letting go of the us versus them. We're the good guys. Politicians and corporations are the bad guys. It's letting go of that and realizing that actually governments and, co and corporations are doing what they're doing because they're stuck in, in the vicious circle of, of, of destructive global competition like everybody else. Um, but that, that is quite, a, you know, that's a very powerful identification that, that, that Green has, you know, that, that the postmodern level has. And often I think to, to many of them, you know, they're, they're, their worldview, their modus operandi is, well, if we just protest loud enough and long enough, we will get the government to do what we want. And, and Simpol is, is really saying, well, actually, you know what? You won't. And the last 40 years of activism have demonstrated that. And now is the time to, you know, you need to really need to understand that it's not that governments don't want to act. It's the destructive global competition means that they can't act. Um, but but to most to most people at, at the postmodern level, you know they would see Simpol, all nations acting together. That's just going to delay action. They would say, you know, we need it now. That's why we've got to get out on the streets and 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 and. You know, so so it's a it's a very um, it's it's a very different way of thinking. And, and it's, it's been, I, I didn't realize, well, I only started to realize what I was up against when I started to read Ken Wilber <laughs> and, and Spiral Dynamics. And, and then, I, then I understood uh, what, what we were up against. And also, you know, it's, it's, it's helped in my education because I think even though I were, you know, I had this altered state idea 20 years ago that, that was sort of teal turquoise or whatever, my own state was still po pretty postmodern, actually. And so I've had a, an, you know, a 20 years of actually trying to get this rewired, as it were, might get myself rewired. And, and it's, it's, it's not easy. You know, it's not easy. No, it's very, I mean, it's interesting to think about ideas in which we're rapidly approaching a critical mass, a tipping point of advanced thinkers who will have the consciousness necessary to instinctively implement these things. Uh, but when you think about how long it takes and how urgent the crises are and how long it takes for people who get the ideas to actually get there in their being, we really wonder whether we have the time <laughs> <laughs> to get yeah. people authentically there. Obviously, we have to work on that. But at yeah. the same time, people who are in the vanguard have to be producing systems that can operate in excess of the individuals and also help the individuals along by participating in that system. Exactly. And that, that's, we, we've come around much more to that way of thinking, actually, or I have. <clears throat> you know, when we started, um, I thought, well, you know, we, we'll, we'll get lots of citizens signed up to this then we'll then then that'll drive the politicians to sign up. Then we'll get the parties, and then we'll get government. And what what I discovered was that actually citizens don't get it very easily. And that's that's partly why I focused on the integral community because I thought about oh, that section of of society, that small section, 
does have the capacity to understand it. And most of the people in Simpol, many of them are integral or spiral dynamics people. So, so, but given that citizens more generally are rather slow, what we found in fact is that politicians are much more open to it, not just because of the voting incentive that we, we give them, but, but we've got many, you'll see on our website, I mean, there are many comments we've had from politicians all over the world who, who genuinely appreciate this idea. You know, they say, thank you, at last someone's come up with a solution to our biggest problem, you know, which is on the one hand, we want, we want to save, you know, solve climate change and what have you, but on the other, we've got to keep Britain internationally competitive and we're, we're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place, you know. So, so to many politicians, actually, Simpol resonates quite, quite well with them. And so our strategy really is, yes, we want citizens to, to come on board because ultimately we, we've got to have citizens, but we are also focusing quite strongly on getting politicians signed up so that I think as, as the crisis builds, we, you know, at the end of the day, the people, the buck is going to stop with the politicians, right? You know, at the end of the day, they're the ones that everyone's going to look to, to act. And that's why we hope that by doing what we're doing, getting Simpol under their noses, when they've got to act, and they maybe see that the UN process isn't a solution, oh, what's this Simpol thing that, that I've been looking at for the last, oh yeah, actually that could be a solution. You know, so... I mean, we're, we're trying. We, we, we're trying all sorts of ways, but we are we are we're focused on citizens, but we're also focused on the politicians themselves um, as well. So we'll see. We'll see. There are a number of existing international organizations. Uh, you know, some of them are like the WTO, and some of them are like the UN, and some of them are like teams of NGOs. We've talked about some of the reasons why the UN is unsuccessful because it's not dealing with uh, packages of issues in which trade-offs can be negotiated. But why can't these problems in general get solved by existing international organizations? And then also, what will the role of those existing organizations be in the implementation of Simple? Do they have a role in that going forward? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, they would, and I'll explain in a minute. I mean, the, the problem with international organizations at the moment, Lame, and I, I think, is that they are, they're subtly nation-centric. I mean, who designed the United Nations? Nation-states, right? And, and so that it was purposely designed in a way that, that uh, didn't give the United Nations itself any autonomous power over the member nations. You know, that, that it was deliberately designed not to be a global, an effective global body. Why? Because it was designed by Britain, France, the US and Russia and, you know, the old, uh, the permanent five members of the Security Council. <clears throat> and um, when it comes to, and the same goes, I think, for the IMF and the World Bank, they are basically the main shareholders are the, 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 the strongest nation states who all have their own interests and, and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, when it comes to the World Trade Organization, <coughs> that, is, that has a more egalitarian structure 
But um, actually, I gave a talk there many years ago. Uh, and uh, it's quite funny because, you know, the US has a, has a, has a sort of delegation to the, to, to the World Trade Organization, about 600 people, you know, like lawyers and trade specialists and doctors. You know, but most of these developing countries, they've just got one guy and a secretary. You know, it's, you know, they just haven't got a chance, basically. And so although the World Trade Organization is, is, is in principle more egalitarian, it, it's not really. And it's also just dealing with trade. You know, and I think this, this is part of the problem is, is if you think of what a national government does, it, it's integrating trade, society and environment. Okay, those three broad spheres are, are the, the purpose of government is to is to integrate those three interests and, and to sort of somehow make them work together. <clears throat> but at the global level, you've got the, the World Trade Organization just looking at trade, and and of course you you know then you've got uh, and and so the, and 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 so the World Trade Organization, of course, of being peopled by all sorts of clever guys who, who of course have been educated at Harvard and, and you know, thoroughly inculcated with neoliberal, uh, you know, free market economics, you know, it's, it's not surprising that their prescriptions are, well, if, if something's going wrong, well, it's because it's, it's, still too de it's still too regulated. We need to deregulate it even more, you know, so it just, you know, the, 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 the current, or international organizations just, just are not configured to get us out of the mess that we're in. And unfortunately, neither is the United Nations. So, so that's, that's sort of why Sempol is relevant is because you know, the, the existing organizations just can't do it. They're not, they're not configured to do it. Um, coming on to the second part of your question, I think there certainly would be ways, you know, I, I would foresee, you know, for example, the, the, you know, something like the World Trade Organization, the, the International Labor Organization, the International Criminal Court, all of these could, could be built in to a sort of simple structure driven by citizens, ultimately with citizens, uh, at least in, in democratic countries, having, you know, you know the, the final say. Um, and I think they could be incorporated. I mean, I, I don't know exactly how, but I'm, you know, that they... They, they 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 perform a function, but that 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 function would just need to be sort of transformed a bit, um, and then they and would, they would need to be brought into a more integrated um, framework, which they're not at the moment. One of the things I love about Simple is it seems to require an expansion, require or enable an expansion of empathy. Right, it's very easy to look at the fact that national governments are failing. <laughs> and to look at a problem associated with international corporate action and decide that either politicians or the owners of corporations are the villains. But this is a model in which they're not necessarily the villains, in which they're driven by structural incentives and where we can bring them into the fold, so to speak. And I think that's a very powerful uh, moral extension of this concept. Yeah, yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, I mean, you know, and I think I think it's, you know, my my business background is 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 I'm sure an important reason why I came up with the idea because I, I know as a business, I was talking to Jim Rutt about this as well. And he said the same thing, you know, is that 
as business people, we know that, you know, we may want to behave as ethically as, as, as we can, but there are times when, because of competitive pressure, you know, you just got no choice, basically. You have to, you know, if you don't, if you don't kick 10 people out today and you leave the situation, you might have to kick 50 out tomorrow, you know. And so what, you know, it's, it's a, it becomes a least, you know, the, the least worst option of, 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 of a bunch of bad options, basically. And you've got to, you know, at the end of the day, you've got to keep your business competitive and profitable. And if, if you are in, at times under enormous pressure, you, you just simply don't have the choice. And um, so I think that it's important that we understand that people generally, yes, of course, there are some evil bastards out there. There's no question about that. But in the general, generally speaking, I don't think it's that business people are evil people or want to do the wrong thing or whatever, most of them, or the same with politicians. They are just constrained by the, the competitive system that, that we all find ourselves in. And so the, the, you know, I sometimes think simple is just about two things. It's about forgiving ourselves and each other, and it's about taking responsibility. That's it. You know, and, and the forgiving ourselves and each other is, is very much what you're saying, Lehman, is, is, is realizing that, you know, we, we are all caught in this system. It's killing us all, frankly, and will kill us all. And, and even the Bill Gateses, right at the top of the system, or the, or the, the Jeff Bezoses, couldn't change it, even if they wanted to. They couldn't do it alone. Ultimately, only governments working together can change it. You know, they've got to become the dog that wags the tail, and we've got to help them get there. So what changes could nation states make within themselves unilaterally that would help this process along? Well very very few you know i mean this this is this is the point you know often that question layman i mean short of short of signing on to simple <laughs> you know the, the, there's very little that they you know and engaging in the un process and and, and the, the oecd and, and and all of that you know short of that that you know there is actually very little they can do that's the point you know, we are now at a stage with, with globalization and the free movement of capital that the space for unilateral action has, has been squeezed down to next to nothing. And that's why politicians continually say they will do stuff, but they don't do it because they can't do it. But they need to keep saying they'll do it because they've got to try to maintain the illusion that they have the power and they don't. You know, they really don't. I mean, I'm not saying they can't do anything, you know, but I'm just saying that the space for the space for unilateral action on on global issues is now very, very, very so small as to be. It's a distraction. I, I believe. I'm curious about your take on healthy nationalism. 
because it seems like there's a role for uh, shared ethos, for pride, and maybe even because nations and before them kingdoms have had predatory relationships with each other. And I think, you know, we might be foolish to let our guard down, so to speak. So, yeah. uh, you know, obviously there can be a real problem with national chauvinism and it's holding back some of the energy that would go to make changes at the planetary scale. But what do you see as, as good nationalism? Well, you know, this is this. I mean, I completely agree with you, Lehman. And, and this, again, is where simple and destructive global competition, that thinking is so valuable, because if you use that differentiation tool, let's call it, you can differentiate those policies or, or actions that a nation can implement alone without causing it a competitive disadvantage, and those other policies that it can't implement alone because it would, it would cause a competitive disadvantage. And that separation is, in a sense, the separation between the national and the global. Okay, so anything that we can do unilaterally without causing ourselves a competitive disadvantage, that's the healthy national role. And anything that we need to do with other nations to get it done without suffering a competitive, in other words, all the simple type policies, we can support those two. That's our healthy global identity, if you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and I think when you start thinking like that, you can start to see that, oh yeah, you know, if, if nations cooperated to, to tax these multinationals and could actually um, use some of that money to support Central American countries and other, other developing countries, um, you know, so we wouldn't be paying for it. Those corporations essentially would be paying for it um, or financial markets, you know, or the super wealthy would be paying for that. You know, that actually would support stronger national identities everywhere. So it's, it's what I call um, the difference between multiculturalism at the, at the green postmodern level and what I call simulculturalism. Okay, that's where all nations are supported by a, by a global, a cooperatively governed global economy that is 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 fair to everybody, and and also supports the the weaker the weaker nations in everyone's interests, so that they, you know, because often what's happening now, <clears throat> you know, look at Britain, our health service wouldn't run without Im immigrants from India and Africa and all sorts of other places. But often those people are the brightest brains those countries have. And how can those countries develop if they that if those brains are being sucked into the into the into into, into the developed world? You know. So it, it's just ultimately not in our our interests. And, and that's that's what I think, you know, that's where you, you, you can support healthy national identities are supported by supporting global cooperation. So again, it's a both and. It's not a. It's not the the nationalist globalist dichotomy that people think it is. If you move up to a world centric level of, of, of consciousness, if you don't, <laughs> you know, you, you're lost. You mentioned Ken Wilber. You mentioned Irvin Laszlo. Who else? You know, who do you read? Who are you taking as an important source of information? Are you reading David Sloan Wilson or, you know, yep. what are your idea sources? 
Yeah, David Sloan Wilson is um, is a strong supporter as well. But Ken Wilber has been very important. But uh, one, one of the ones who, who you may not know of, Layman, is John Stewart, the evolutionary biologist who wrote, Australian guy, who wrote um, Evolution's Arrow, the direction of We're evolution. Very carefully aware of him. <laughs> yeah, and so he, 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 he's a fascinating thinker, I, I, I believe. There's, on our YouTube channel, there's, a, there's an interview with him and me um, together, um, which, which you might find quite interesting. And he, he, um, he, was, he wrote to me back in like 2001 or two and said to me, I don't know whether you realize it, John, but Simpol is very, it mimics the way that evolution has overcome competition bottlenecks in the past. Mm. And at that time, I didn't know what the fuck he was talking about. Um, I read his book, but then, you know, he really helped me to see the, the evolutionary context for Simpol and how important it was in that context. So he, he in a sense, gave me the outer quadrant knowledge ken gave me the inner quadrant knowledge you know so that so john stewart i would say is important very important uh yeah david sloan wilson ken you know don beck to some degree um and you know the, the other guys who you know you you will know pretty well i think yeah i imagine that, uh, john stewart's thinking will play a role if you uh, if you end up engaging Brett Weinstein on this, um, John Stewart's ideas will provide a context for that. I, I'm Absolutely. curious what your um, what is it that you appreciate about David Sloan Wilson? What parts of his ideas do you think are really resonant with this? Well, I think his his focus on Eleanor Ostrom's eight um, design principles for pro-social cooperative ventures. And I think, you know, when he, when, when David read my book, uh, the, the Simple Solution that you, you've just read, he, he recognized that. <clears throat> and also his, his idea of, of polycentric governance, you know, the idea that you, 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 so it's subsidiarity, the idea of subsidiarity that you um, only decide those things at, at the lowest possible level, at the most local possible level. And again, you know, that, that's something that is, is an inherent part of Simpol in what I, this differentiation I was talking about earlier. If it's, if it's, an, if it's a policy nations can implement alone without, you know, where it either will create no competitive disadvantage or even a competitive advantage, it has nothing to do with Simpol. It can be decided at the national level. It's only those policies that, that can't be implemented alone that nations would like to implement but can't because of competition, those are the simple ones. So there's a, there's a very, you know, the whole subsidiarity thing is built into simple. Um, yeah, I appreciate right. your yeah, right. foundation. Right. Yeah. The idea of, because yeah. I think people aren't yeah. enough about that in their discussions with each other, that subsidiary means solve everything at the lowest possible scale that it can be solved at and that is what clarifies the residual things that have to be solved at a higher scale exactly and i think one of the things that people that confuses people <clears throat> is that because because the global level governance hasn't yet been put in place 
the, tox the, the arising toxicity of that chaos is trickling down to all the lower levels. And that's making people think, oh, we've got to act, do this. You know, it's, con it's confusing people. And, and, and that's one of the reasons I think people are not yet, they don't yet understand that um, without solving the global level piece in the puzzle, you're never going to solve the rest because that poison is going to keep on trickling down and confusing everything and, you know. What does, um, what does an effective and affirmable planetary governance process look like in distinction from a planetary government? Yeah, good point. <laughs> yeah, and this, this, is, this is another thing. I, I always love to, uh, I mean, you're in Canada, but if, I, if I'm talking to Jim or anyone in the US, I'm always very careful to say that simple is not a world government. It's more like a, a global treaty you would say, a citizen-driven global treaty, freely entered into by nation states for the simple reason that it's in their interests to enter into it. It's in their national self-interest to cooperate. And so Simpol is not about a world government, God forbid, because we don't actually need one. I, I don't think we need one. <clears throat> I think the Simpol process is a, is a kind of, it's a tool, it's a tool for global cooperation that, that is there that can be used by nations on an ongoing basis without the need for a world government. What lessons uh, for good or ill should we take away from the European Economic Union? What do you think they got right and what do you think they got wrong as an international setup? It's a good, good question. I think Again, the European Union suffers from the same or a similar problem to the United Nations. And that is that the, that the European Parliament cannot actually create new laws. It can only approve or disapprove laws that are proposed by the European Commission. Who is the Commission? It's the nation states, right? Because the nation state the national governments know damn well that if, if, if the European Commission didn't keep control, their role would be gone, right? And so that's, you know, there is, a, there is a lack of democracy in the European Union that is just as there is in the UN. Um, and that's one problem with it. I think the other problem with it is, is, it is it's, it's a bit its design is rather 19th or 20th century. It's still built on the model of a nation's, just a super nation state. And that is just, it's too rigid. It's too rigid. And that, you know, that's, that's part of the problem. So, and I think that's why something like Simpol, I mean, funnily enough, Layman, actually, one, one of the, few years ago, one of the high up politicians in UKIP, the UK Independence Party, which was the party of Nigel Farage, you know, uh, actually he contacted me because they, they were quite interested in Simpol because they kind of realized that, that they wanted to get rid of the EU, right? They wanted Brexit and they want to get rid of the EU, but they also kind of realized that 
well, if we get rid of the EU, we, we're still going to need some kind of framework through which we can cooperate with other governments on, on global problems. So they, you know, even parties on the right, I think, are seeing, you know, they see something in simple, not only actually that it's a way to safeguard healthy national identity, but it's also a way to facilitate cooperation at the global level in a way that is maximally in every nation's self-interest, rather than under some kind of, you know, draconian, top-down European Union or world government or something like that. Well, speaking of draconians, there, there's traditionally an uh, in-between condition between kingdoms and nations and the world, and that's empires, right? Collections of countries that don't cover the whole planet, but, right, uh, Britain obviously is one of them. <laughs> Russia has been one of them. The United States in its own way has been this thing. Do you think they are, you know, an important negotiating step on that road, or do they have to break up into more ethnically and geographically homogenous subunits like does simple work better if the kurds have a state does simple work better if the scots decide to step away from the united kingdom right or quebec from canada does that make because, any difference no it makes no difference to us at all you know we we <laughs> you know if scotland left the united kingdom it'd just be another country with another website for us you know and we we follow the same process um, regardless, it, it makes absolutely no difference to us. So, you know, Simpol is really, you know, that's the flexibility of it, yeah. is that it really doesn't matter what happens uh, in that regard. We, we still, uh, you know, we still operate. You know, we have politicians signed up that, that are in the European Parliament. We have them signed up if they're in national parliaments. So either which way, it doesn't really matter. Um, but I, I think in a more general sense, I think you know, we are entering a phase of, of fragmentation now. And, and I think that is, that is because of the imbalance between a globalized economy, but governance that's only on the national level. And that imbalance is, is creating this, this fragmentation now. Not, not only, you know, Britain leaving the European Union, for example, <clears throat> but also, within nations, for example, in Spain, you've got Catalonia wanting to go independent, you know, because nation states are not cooperating and are not able to deal with global problems, that some of their sub-regions are beginning to ask themselves, well, what's the point of being, being part of Spain? What's the point of being, you know, um, a, a state within a nation state if the nation state can't protect our interests? You know, so it's, this is this is the poison that's trickling down, see, uh, from the global level, from the lack of, you know, and it's not, you know, I, I, I again, I, it, it, it annoys me, Layman, when people say things like, well, we need a new kind of economy, you know, in, you know we need a new global economy. I think, no, we don't. There's nothing, you know, the economy is doing exactly what you would expect it to do uh, without governance at the same, on the same scale. You know, so it's the governance piece that we need. If you have the governance piece, that will imbue to the global economy the values of sustainability and fairness and redistribution, stuff, all of the stuff we, we know we need. It's not the economy itself 
really that needs to change. It's the governance that's missing. Yeah, there's a lot of ways that the economy can function, and there's actually a lot of solutions to all of our problems that already exist. In the United States, for example, there's a ton of laws that should be governing things much better that just simply aren't being implemented or enforced because the pressures and incentives aren't there to operate them properly. And one of the things I really enjoy about the book is this notion of matching the scale of cooperation to the scale of competition. Right. So that if they work together, we have a good form of competition. And right now, competition has exceeded the nation level, yeah. but the cooperative principles have not matched them. Absolutely. I mean, just imagine, just imagine like you had a, an ice hockey game, but the referee could only ref just one corner of it. Can you imagine what would go on in the rest of the, the rest of the... <laughs> Is that example trying to relate to me as a Canadian? <laughs> that was my rather half-hearted half British attempt at, at, uh, at cultural, intercultural understanding, yeah. <laughs> not bad, not bad. <laughs> um, I don't want to sully the procedural purity of simple, but I am interested in what you as an individual think would be important policies to change if if it was autocratically up to you what would you try to do well i i, I personally i think it's it's you know um on our website we we don't have specific policies but what we do list are, are a list of issues that, that are the issues that are going to require uh, a simple type approach so climate change wealth inequality, um, financial market regulation, you know, vaccine production and district fair vaccine production distribution. What else? Um, space governance. Um, you know, they, they, they're having trouble getting satellites up there because there's so much space junk out, you know, in the, in the orbital um, layers that it's actually becoming quite dangerous. You know, so there's a sort of pollution problem up there now as well. Um, so there's, you know, we we you know we, we are listing issues at this stage, Layman. I, I I wouldn't you know what policies. I mean, my, you know, the, the the kind of policy I could envisage would be something like a package of consisting of a a strong emissions reduction, a global emissions reduction agreement, but on the other side, some kind of global tax. It might be a currency transactions tax. It might be a wealth tax. It might be um, a hike in corporation tax, like Yellen is, is Janet Yellen has, has suggested. But the idea being that the proceeds from the tax you can use to pay off the big losers on the climate part of the agreement. So something like that could be simple one. Um, and actually, one of the things we, one of the projects we have on at the moment, we're trying to find. So a university to do a, a proper university study on that scenario is, you know, so if we want to reduce emissions by say 80% by a certain date, what would that cost? What would the tax, how high would the tax have to be to, to cover that cost? And then maybe some scenarios on how the proceeds of the tax could be distributed in the most efficient and fair way to nation by nation to make the highest chance of getting an agreement. Yes. So, so those are the kind of studies that we're, we're looking at, at getting done 
has ideas for what the policies could look like. But it, it's, it's still very open and we're still waiting. You know, we, we'd love some computer modelers and policy experts to, to, to help us to, you know, to, to put some flesh on those bones. Because I think you're right. I think often people, it's, it's a bit abstract without that. And, and I understand that. I understand that problem. So, but we need help. You know, we need, we need the experts to come in and, uh, and help us. Yeah, we need good collective intelligence solutions. Yeah. And at the same time, everybody else other than simple is putting forward their policy agenda rather than looking at the implementation dynamics. <laughs> exactly. And this is what I mean about the horse and the cart. They're all focused on the cart, but they've got no bloody way to get it implemented. And that's, you know, it's when we start putting those two things together, the horse and the cart, then you've got something, you know, then you, then you, then you've really got both elements. But, but, but as you say, most people now they're talking about, you know, the policies are what, what we need is this policy for climate change or this policy for monetary reform or whatever it may be, but they they are completely ignoring the how, the how question, how do you get it implemented? And that's the piece that simple, I think answers quite, you know, reasonably well. Obviously, multinational corporations can leverage their impact on national economies to win special treatment from governments. Uh, but do you think they also leverage the impression that they can do that? Like, if you had a corporation that, say, in the United States said, if you, if you impose this slight tax increase or if you put these regulations on us, we're just going to abandon this factory and all these workers and move to Mexico. Aren't there, you know, a dozen corporations or companies in the waiting who would take that deal, who could replace that one? Is there an element of bravado or is it always a real risk? Well, it's, it's both, I would say, Lehman, because it's also an asymmetric, it's an asymmetric power imbalance. Because if you're, if, you know, an individual corporation may have its own particular calculation in mind. And there will be many factors. You know, so the corporation tax level will be one factor, but there will be lots of other factors in their decision-making. But you see, governments, they've got to legislate for everybody, for all corporations. And so they've got to, governments have got a much sort of more tricky balance to, to judge. And of course, you know, they... You know, they, they're scared. You know, they are scared of, you know, they're losing jobs. And, and you know, so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not so easy for a government to say, well, if we set corporation tax at this level, this will happen or this won't happen. They, they, they can't, you know, I don't think they can really judge that. They, they've got to sort of feel their way through to it and 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 of course they are being bombarded all the time by the Cato Institute and and all these you know right-wing think the free market think tanks that are telling them oh don't do that because you know you know that could be nasty for for your for our competitive position and so forth so there is some bravado and there is some reality and I think it's very difficult to for governments to really judge it 
I mean, the one thing they certainly can't do, well, I mean, the only reason that some governments are really increasing corporation tax right now is, is in a sense because they're simultaneously up to their necks in debt because of COVID. And so they, there's a kind of window of opportunity where, where they can maybe play that, do that without risking too much. You know? But I think if, if the vaccine rollout continues to be very uneven, and if harmful vaccine resistant mutations don't come back, then you're gonna see a divergence between, you're gonna see the US and maybe the UK and the European Union economies recovering quicker than the others. And then that window of opportunity for cooperation will be lost because you've then got the disparity again. And, and the, you know, the winners are going to think, oh, well, we don't need to cooperate because we're moving ahead. You know, never, you know, never mind the others, to hell with the others, you know. Whereas right now, there is an opportunity for cooperation. And I, I very much hope that they do it. But let's see. Do you think one of the things that needs to be implemented simultaneously is a shift in the legal architecture of corporations? Like, is the maximization of shareholder value uh, a reasonable thing, or does that have to be shifted? And does that shift it internationally? Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I mean, in a, in a sense, if you had a global you know, if you had something like Simpol in place that was enforcing higher ethical standards and, and what have you on corporations everywhere, in a sense, you, 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 you could go back to shareholder value. Do you see what I mean? In other words, if, you know, the, the I mean, this is, this, is an, you know, this is the Milton Friedman argument that, you know, the business of business is business. You know, it's not the business of business to be socially responsible. And in a sense, he's right, you know, in a, in, a, in a very narrow kind of cut and dried sense, he is right. Um, but that assumes that there is adequate governance in place, which there isn't right now at the global level. There is almost no referee. There is no governance. And so, um, you know, but again, you know, this is where I feel that the whole corporate social responsibility thing is a little bit of a distraction from what, you know, from something like Simpol, which is what we really need is to get the governance in place at the global level. And then what happens with shareholder value or stakeholder value doesn't matter so much. You know, then it becomes more a question of corporate reputation and, you know, the usual pressure and blah, 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 you know. It's, it's the governance piece that's, that's the important thing. There's an interesting thing in the book uh, around the idea that as negotiations for international treaties were to emerge in this fashion, that proposals that come from or correspond to a world-centric state of consciousness, that those would be favored over uh, traditionalist, modern, or postmodern policies because they would be the only broadly popular ones that weren't canceled out by one of the rivals. And that's a very attractive idea. But at the same time, we see uh, in most of the nation states that the political process sort of gets hacked into this uh, two-sided situation in which these two teams, neither of which represent the general 
uh, interests of the population are constantly vying for a very tiny advantage. What's to stop that from happening at the global level? What's to stop um, two non-world centric options from dominating? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that, Layman. <laughs> we've got to get we've got to get there to find out. I would say, but I, I would I mean, my, my, I suppose my general answer would be that cooperation happens when the crisis is high, right? And and I think that by the time something like Simpol was really getting negotiated, if we ever were to reach that point, you know. <laughs> things would be so bloody bad that no one would really be thinking about arguing too much about it. They just we just got to get it done because the alternatives mean we're all going to go down the tubes. You know. Um, the other thing I, I would say is that is, is again it's the the lack of differentiation at the national level caused by the lack of a global, you know, but the, the lack of world centric thinking that that makes the national conversation so complicated you know and so contentious because i think if you if 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 green and orange and blue could suddenly become world centric and would see okay well we can take all of those global issues out of the conversation and throw them into simple and deal with them there and then look back well what have we got left to argue about at the national level they would discover well, actually, yeah, you know, there's stuff to argue about, but it's not nearly so contentious and so divisive. And so, um, you know, I mean, you will always it would get take a lot of pressure out of the system. Yes, I think it would just take a lot of pressure out of the system, you know, and, and <clears throat> at the global level, likewise, I think the fact that that you have this subsidiarity um, filter means that you know so so the kind of the kind of very very um contentious issues say it might be like uh, abortion or capital punishment or something like that and you think well simple sorts that out immediately because you said you sort of say well would capital punishment need to be implemented globally and simultaneously or could it be implemented by a nation on its own well obviously it can be implemented by a nation on its own so it's got nothing to do with simple so that filter, the same with gender, the same with abortion, the same with so many cultural issues, they are not issues that require global and simultaneous action. And therefore, there's a whole swathe of those very highly contentious issues, which wouldn't even enter the, you know, they just don't, they just get filtered out. out already. Yeah, they get pre-filtered, yeah, because they just don't require simultaneous implementation. Simple. You know, so I think it would simplify a lot of the debate at both levels, actually. But there's no guarantees, Layman. I don't know. You know, <laughs> there's no there's no certainty that it will succeed. You know, all I'm all, the only the only brief I hold for Simpol is is kind of like, do we have a better idea? <laughs> really, it's not. You know, it's more in that spirit. Well, if we don't have a better idea, how do we help it succeed? If people are watching or listening, regardless of what country they're in, what can they do to assist this project? Very simple. Just sign up at simple.org. It takes a couple of minutes. And um, that, that's the minimum. <clears throat> uh, but if you want to get involved, you know, we need people to get involved 
in campaigning, in, in, in getting campaigns going in countries where we don't yet have representation. So yeah, uh, just signing up is the minimum, but there's a lot more beyond that you can do if you wish. But if you, you've got to sign up because if, we don't, if you don't sign up, the signing up bit is the, is the evidence that we can then show to your political representative to say, here is a voter that is going to give preference to candidates at future elections to candidates that, ha uh, that, that have signed on to Simple. You know, so there's a, you know, that you're signing, you're signing on to Simple is sending a message, an incentive message to your political representative. So if you don't sign on, they're not going to hear about it and, and they need to hear about it. Terrific. This has been a really um, enlivening conversation. I appreciate your vision. I appreciate how balanced and pragmatic you sound. <laughs> I think you thought I was a crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't tell. You can't tell when you check yourself if you're crazy or not. <laughs> so, so my feedback so, is you I don't sound a good crazy. act. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate it, Layman. It's 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 lovely to have a, a slightly more in-depth conversation about it because, on the one hand, it's a simple concept. On the other hand, actually, there's so much going on in it um, that it, it, it does take a little bit of uh, teasing teasing apart. Mm -hmm.